Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution we know we need. Let's preface this interview by stating very clearly that sex work is work. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, and we'll go through that in the episode. You know, first, you'll get your Puritans and your moralists out there clutching their pearls. But I think we, we know to expect that from social conservatives. It's a symptom of the patriarchy, and we, we generally know what to say to those folks. But I'd like our audience to also see it from the perspective that we consider ourselves advocates for the working class. These are workers who actually own and control their means of production. And as you'll hear, almost every intersection of oppression also plays in here. We need to be paying better attention because sex workers have been legislated against and criminalized in Canada in ways no other workers have experienced. That stigma that exists seems to prevent the level of allyship that we should expect considering what you're going to hear from our next guest. But this episode isn't only about validating sex workers and their rights. It's also a discussion on the formation of alliances and the choice of tactics. The Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform has dedicated their energies inside the courtroom. We'll get to ask Jen Clayman about opting to use the legal system and its tools to make the changes that they need versus the more traditional lobbying we often see for legislative reforms. Let's hear how they got there and what they expect to get out of it. Good morning, Jen. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. Um, my name is Jen Clayman. I'm the National Coordinator for the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform. Um, the, I, I can tell you a little bit about what the alliance is. Yeah, our alliance is um, a group of 26 currently sex worker rights groups across the country, um, most of which are led by sex workers for sex workers. And uh, together, all of the individual groups um, do lots of, you know, meet thousands and thousands of sex workers in, in their daily, well, not in their daily work, but over the course of time in their work. Um, they offered frontline services, education, advocacy, all sorts of uh work for sex workers in the community. And what we do as an alliance is we come together under the, the banner of the alliance to do the very, it's a very big work, but the very small portion of our work, which is around uh, reforming the laws that uh, control and repress sex workers on a day-to-day -day basis. That's an interesting way to organize um, because then, so the, the alliance that you formed is very focused on a task. So if you look on your website, as well as I'm going through the safety, dignity and equality piece. Um, we'll get into that as we go through the show. I'm astonished by the 26 members. This is a real rainbow coalition, um, really small groups right across the country. You can see they have different focuses, but all around sex work, um, but some focus on migrants, uh, some have very specific neighborhoods. It's incredible that 26 very different groups that are representing, like you said, thousands of sex workers were able to come to consensus on the work that you've provided me and the subsequent court challenge. 
because, let, sorry, just like, so folks can understand there's 76 pages I was sent and it was incredible. And the fact that there's a consensus built on this strengthens that position so much, in my opinion. Uh, like this paper is filled with the history, um, recommendations, legal recommendations, education recommendations, policing recommendations, all the reasoning and um, behind it, the political nuances that need to be known. It's incredible, actually. Uh Thank you. It's the most research I've done for an episode. How do you do that sure. with so many? <laughs> well, I think maybe just to contextualize what you're saying, I'll back up again, just so people understand the context in which that happened. Um, I'll start by saying the sex worker rights movement across the globe, not just across Canada, is over 50 years old. Um, there are millions of sex workers uh, organized uh, for their rights across the globe. You can name any country and I can tell you there's a sex worker rights group there from Fiji to Kyrgyzstan to uh, Turkey to, um, you know, Senegal to like, uh, you know, all across Canada, all across the States, all across Eastern and uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia and all across the world and every continent. So, the um, the movement for sex workers' rights and sex workers being organized for their own rights isn't new, um, but but is of course impressive. Um, and so in Canada as well, uh, that movement is older than fifty years old. So groups of sex workers across the country that formed them created um, where sex workers could organize um, do have shared values. And one of those shared values across the entire globe is uh, is, a, is a value um, to remove, is, de, is around decriminalization, is around a legislative framework that actually promotes sex workers' rights and he, sex workers' human rights. Um, and so that in and of itself is, is, is impressive, but that is, is a very old idea. Um, in Canada, our alliance was created in 2012. It was during one of the, it was during the first constitutional challenge or the last constitutional challenge, which was uh, Bedford versus Canada, where three sex workers uh, sued the government, um, claiming that the laws that existed at the time, the prostitution laws that existed at the time, contravened their human rights. And so even though we'd been organizing across the country for so long, we didn't have an alliance with a solidified message about the details of what that would look like. And so in 2012, we came together to create and be visible with a much larger voice for particularly sex work law reform, um, because a lot of people had been for decades saying, we want decrim, we want decrim. What does decrim actually mean? We were at a crux there at this constitutional challenge where we had to start to think about that. And so, um, you know, the, the basic notion of decriminalization is the removal of criminal laws or the removal of a criminal framework for sex work. But the details of what that would look like really did need to get hammered out. And so when we created this alliance, it was an opportunity for us to do that. And so what we did was uh, we created our alliance. We did our advocacy around Bedford. We did our support to diversify the voices about uh, and, and the perspectives in that constitutional challenge because it was three sex workers in that constitutional challenge. So we wanted to offer we wanted to offer up the even more the multitude of sex workers across the country that were being harmed by criminal laws. But when that challenge was over when they won when it won actually um, yes yeah, side note yeah. they were right that's it and when it was over we said okay we need to now actually really dig our heels in literally and um and define what decriminalization actually means and so we did a consultation across the country that produced that document you're speaking of and we can get into details about what that meant for us but i i wanted to just highlight how 
you know, when you look at our website at the different membership, it's the one thing that everyone has in common is that they're working in the sex industry for one, or, you know, that most of the groups are people working in the industry, serving people in the industry, or they're groups that serve people in the industry. Um, but the, the fact that, you know, you have migrant sex workers, trans sex workers, black sex workers, indigenous sex workers, sex workers who use drugs, all of the different kinds of sex workers is essential to an alliance of any kind because it is the most marginalized sex workers that are impacted by those laws. And so we couldn't organize without that range. And the, all of these groups started to pop up as well over time when they recognized, well, wait a second, we need to actually center this the, the experiences of migrant sex workers. We need to center the experiences of indigenous sex workers. So that's why you see the what you were referring to as a rainbow. That's why you see that in our membership, because um, we couldn't fight for law reform without those experiences being central to what it is that we're asking for. And I'll just like kudos to the folks who actually put the report together, because the language that is used there makes that clear throughout, um, When we're, especially when emphasizing on policing and over-policing, but also the material needs not being met, you know, and how decriminalization is a step. But, you know, there's always this acknowledgement that there is much, a much larger battle. So I think it's, that's why I think that form of organizing is so amazing, because all of these 26 members um, are still doing this on the ground, very key work to support sex workers. Uh, and to me, like, I didn't expect to ask you this, but it has a real feel of a labor union. Oh, yeah. yeah. What you're talking about is a labor union. Are you <laughs> welcome in traditional labor union spaces? So we're not you... we're not talking about a labor union per se, but again, just to sort of root it in the history of, of sex workers' rights is the sex worker rights movement is a labor movement. It is many. It is. We, 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 we intersect with many different movements. Um, it is also a migrant justice movement, it is also a racial justice movement, etc. But But at the crux of the the fight for sex workers' rights is a recognition of sex work as labor and as valuable labor. And when I use the term valuable, I, I mean, um, it is valuable for, for someone to be able to pay their hydro bill. It is valuable for someone to be able to feed their kids. It is valuable uh, for people to be able to be affirmed in who they are every day. Um, and, and so um, we do see sex work as labor. And when we're talking about decriminalization, we're talking about removal of criminal laws that currently prevent sex workers from um, employing mechanisms to address labor exploitation and labor abuses. So that the sex worker rights movement at its heart is a, is an anti-exploitation movement, is a movement to counter violence. Um, it's, it's in part, you, people see pieces of pride because that is an inherent element of people fighting for their rights is, uh, you know, there is an element of pride, but it's not a pride movement per se. It is a, it is a, an anti, it is a movement where people got together to address the exploitations they were experiencing. That just often doesn't get um, attention because sex workers are also not repentant necessarily in the work that they're doing. And as such, don't get you know, as such are, are viewed or um, mistaken as like a happy hooker movement, but at, at the roots, it is a labor movement. And so we are and have uh, worked with different labor movements directly over time. My own organizing started with labor movements in the UK, where I joined a group called the International Union for Sex Workers, where um, they were for the first time, at least in the UK, uh, sex workers were, were joining and voting to join a union there. It was the GMB at the time. And the GMB organized uh, autonomous workers, which is not something that 
unions in Canada do. Um, and so different workers from different parts of the industry, from working on the street to working in massage parlors or working in strip clubs, were able to join the GMB union. And it was largely symbolic, um, but very important um, when a union recognizes sex work as labor. And so in Canada, in a Canadian context, I've myself and many, many people across the country have put in a lot of efforts to uh, create links with different unions, um, to pass resolutions with different unions, um, to write resolutions for unions that they can propose. I, I recently wrote one with um, someone for the CLC, but I mean, it doesn't usually get passed. It's not the first time something has been pro proposed at the Canadian Labour Congress around sex work. Um, but there are different unions that have taken resolutions. Um, OPSIU took a resolution years ago. Um, COPE, uh, I mean, I could run through them all, but they're just like union. Even the Liberals, you know. Well, that's a whole other discussion around. It is. companies taking positions, but absolutely that, happened, that has happened too many times um, to, to, with, no, uh, with no result. Um, but to say, but yes, we do, we do and have and will continue to work with unions. I think the most constructive things that unions can do in a context where sex work is still criminalized and because you can't is to is to take positions um is to take um is to pass resolutions in a context where sex work is criminalized unions actually can't do anything for workers because they would be acting as a third party between sex workers and and third and actual third parties in the industry and so that would that's actually illegal to do that you can't negotiate those working conditions in 2003, I actually started an organization with a dear colleague of mine um, called the Canadian uh, Guild for Erotic Labor. And the guild had the intention. I love the name. Behind, right. And the yeah. guild had the intention of working with migrant sex workers in particular, but negotiating with third parties to improve migrant sex workers rights. But it was a very complicated process because uh, it's a criminalized activity to be doing that negotiation. So instead, we, we, we ended up being a pressure group uh, with different unions. Uh, even in advocacies, mm -hmm. e even though they're not third parties to the sex work, it's not illegal for us to advocate for sex workers' rights. No, it's not, okay. No, it's no, it's not illegal to. It, I mean, where it can, I mean, <laughs> I don't care. We're going to do it here today, no, but no, I mean, like, <laughs> no, no, that is. I don't want to. I don't want to overstate the uh, criminalization. Okay. but I will say though that um, for advocacy groups like our members of the alliance. For sure, it is tricky territory that people need to navigate carefully in terms of um, how you support sex workers. Most of the groups in our alliance aren't directive services. One of the most unique things about groups that are run by community for community is that the services are often non-directive, which means we don't tell people what to do. We don't. I, I'm based at one in Montreal called Stella, and so at our organization at Stella, for instance, um, we don't like give advice to sex workers. We just let a sex worker come to the organization to determine her own services and how she wants to navigate things. But we accompany her in that navigation because sometimes we don't know what questions to ask that would, or the questions we're seeking. So it's sort of like helping people come to their own questions. If she wants to start working in the industry, if she wants to stop working in the industry, if she wants to switch to another part of the industry, if she wants to take a break, if she wants to talk about something completely unrelated to the industry, it's really up to her. And so in that non-directiveness, you're not giving advice. And so there's nothing illegal about helping someone come to their own conclusions. Um, that's what um, an active listening role is. But um, obviously, if sex worker groups are promoting or procuring into the industry or or even like referring people to go work at certain places, that could be that could fall under 
uh, and, and risk some some type of criminalization there. But that's usually not what sex worker rights groups want to be doing. But it is hard to navigate um, that sometimes. Um, and most definitely, uh, there is a fear um, that sex workers have in accessing services um, that ties into their own criminalization. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, deters people from, you know, you have to do that second thinking when you're advocating or working in these mutual aid groups that, am I breaking the law? Do I need to worry about those kinds of repercussions? Let's let's take people back to explain that that level of criminalization that occur, that is still there despite the victory at the Supreme Court of Canada. So while you folks are organizing and working to define exactly what decriminalization is, Stephen Harper steps in. He's going to def- lay it out for you um, and unfortunately passes. Now, this is a long one. The protection and the names of these acts are always so Orwellian because they do the opposite of, but either way, it's the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. PCEPA, you can do hashtag repeal PCEPA. Uh, I, I learned a little bit from following that. That's where the third parties are criminalized. And I just want to set the context here, you know, from a labor perspective where you run a business that is now considered legal, but you can't use any vendors. (laughs) You can't employ anyone for help. Um, You know, Jen just talked about the advocacy work and, and that, but like, you know, no one can answer the phone for you. No one can, brothels become, so like, Jen, please explain the, the real impacts, I mean, like there were a lot in that that paper. It, it's incredible the harm that it's doing. But in a nutshell, what did that legislation do? Sure. Can I just clarify the timeline? Just Please. To, yes. yes. So, so what happened was after the Bedford win in 2013, Parliament was given one year to respond. They didn't need to actually uh, propose a new bill or create a new law. They were just given the year to respond. That was the instruction from the court. Um, but in that time, uh, the Harper government at the time that was in power did propose a bill. Um, and they proposed Bill C-36, which became the Protection of Community and Exploited Persons Act. Um, it was after that time that we got together to write the recommendations uh, for law reform. And so I'll, I'll come back to those recommendations after, because I do think that that trajectory is important. But I will uh, just answer your question. So, so when the government was charged with uh, responding and the Harper government uh, created Bill C-36, um, what happened in that moment was was interesting. Like, I sort of, I'll put that in heavy quotes, but... Um, because the Bedford decision was very clear in its recognition of the harms that criminalization has on sex workers. Um, It it wasn't that sophisticated of a decision in the sense that all that the Bedford decision really said in its crux was that sex workers have the right not to be murdered. Sex workers have the right not to experience violence. And that... But not definitively have the right to be sex workers. No, no, it is not a right to be a sex worker. Okay. Absolutely okay, not. Thank you. Absolutely not. But but this recognition that sex workers had the right not to be harmed, had the right not to be murdered, was a really big deal in 2013. And you I see know, me cringing because I, I, I feel like that was already a right For that sure. they should have enjoyed. Think, That's I know, what that face I know. And I and I'm <laughs> and I've, I'm only having such a uh, like a pan face because I've said this so many times, but it's not because it's um, it's not shocking and it's not because it's not um, 
abhorrent. Um, but I, I'll say that um, that right, though, was extremely affirming for sex workers across the country because for so long, particularly in the context where that case started shortly after, but where the whole, particularly in a context where 60 women between early 2000s and um, if, if, for a long time, for over a period of 20 years, went were, were murdered on the downtown east side in Vancouver, um, particularly when those sex workers had been going to police, and particularly in a context where sex workers across the country had been saying um, that they're being targeted for violence and that criminalization was harming and impeding their capacity to implement safety measures, being told that that violence was recognized in that moment by the courts, by nine superior court judges, a unanimous decision was extremely affirming. And the message about harm of criminalization, at least in the social sense, was very clear. So when the Conservative government put forward Bill C-36 that said, we're going to eliminate, with the intention of eliminating sex work, de facto eliminating sex workers, that decision really flew in the face of the of the Bedford decision. It really sort of spat in the in the in the Superior Courts, in the Supreme Court, pardon me, in the Supreme Court of Canada's face. And 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 because everybody assumed, and naturally so, that after a seven-year court battle that had the, the the argument of harm of criminalization at its at its heart, everybody assumed that the next step would be that a government would create a set of laws that would recognize the harms of criminal of a criminal regime. And so the fact that Harper didn't do that and totally did the opposite by saying, no, we're going to actually double down on criminalization by making, for the first time, by making sex work illegal, which is what that, those laws have done, because sex work wasn't illegal in Canada before. So we're going to double down on that criminalization, and we're going to try to eliminate sex workers. Um, that, was, that was what the shock was, too. So the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, which is what Bill C-36 became, um, made sex work illegal for the first time in Canada and also introduced a whole other slew of criminalizations. Um, and it, the objective of the, this current set of, this current regime, this current set of laws is to eliminate the industries, to end demand. And it's... <laughs> end it's, demand? Well, it's, yeah, it's to end the demand. Okay. And, but that's... So So what the laws actually do is it... Um, it it's, it's modeled after... This this idea is sort of a, they call it a Nordic model. I call it a regime because I don't use the word model to to refer to anything that we don't. It want, seems too nice, too right? legitimizing. Yeah, but it's uh, but it but it's the idea behind the Nordic regime is to end demand, is to criminalize clients. However, what's really important, and and I'll stress this because most people don't understand this, or they or they were sold. The PR campaign around this was very strong from the government, and they lied to the public, and they told the public that this was about the criminalization of clients. Yet when the, mo when the model was imported into Canada, they didn't just criminalize clients. They just imported the idea onto an existing set of criminalizations and added more criminalizations. And so it is still illegal to sell your own sexual services as a sex worker in a public space. It is illegal to purchase sexual services anywhere, anytime, in any context. It is illegal to be a third party in the sex industry, to earn a material benefit, or to procure someone, and it is illegal to advertise. Now, what they did was they, again, and this was a huge manipulation, is they wrote this immunity into the law and said sex workers who are selling their own sexual services or who are advertising their own sexual services, 
cannot be prosecuted. However, it's still illegal. So it's it's not that they said it's not not illegal to do that. It's illegal, but you can't be prosecuted, which means that sex workers are still organizing their lives and their work in a context of criminality and are still entrenched in criminality. So yeah, who's going to walk that line, right? Like, well, technically, no, it doesn't. You know, doesn't, that's too risky. No, no, no. Everybody knows that their clients are are it, that they're that they are criminalized. Their work is criminalized. Their clients are criminalized. And that anything. And the police make sure they know this, right? You, that paper yeah. you talk about um, police being really antagonistic and even using laws outside of those specifically for sex work to intimidate and push sex work into the dark, right? Into the alley. Um, figuratively? I mean, the police aren't necessarily... um, So the police are agents of the state. Their job is to follow the letter of the law. Most police don't know what the law says. Um, They're just... That's comforting. ...instruction um, in different ways. But what they do know and what they are instructed instructed to do with these laws, whether they understand how they function or whether they understand them or not, they're instructed to be in the lives of sex workers. Um, they're instructed to... Harassing. That's right. Right? Like in the lives, that's, that's what you mean, right? And police were already instructed to be in the lives of certain communities in public space, for instance. So they are present in public space, surveilling public space, where a lot of folks who are uh, homeless, uh, folks who are Indigenous, folks who are drug using, um, occupy those public spaces. So the PCPA is just another tool in the police arsenal to be in the lives of sex workers. Equally, police are mandated in different ways to surveil certain spaces. And so when so massage parlors, Asian massage parlors in particular, a lot of police will visit with Canadian Border Services Agency um, to massage parlors because they have more tools in their arsenal to do so. So they're instructed to surveil these spaces. So if they can't arrest someone in that moment for prostitution, they can check their ID to see if they have status. They can detain and deport if they don't. And so they, they're they just, PCPA is literally just another tool in the police arsenal that really emboldens police to be in the lives of sex workers. And the act itself, the name of it is really repugnant, right? The Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act is an act that protects communities from sex workers. It's not an act that protects sex workers. It's If you read it, the, the literal name of it, Protection of Communities is first, um, and Exploited Persons. And so it, it assumes that anybody who's working in the sex industry um, is exploited, and it entrenches this idea that everybody's exploited just by virtue of doing sex work, which isn't the case um, for sex workers. Um, but it also doesn't protect people working in the sex industry. So that, so I think people need to really understand what is at the root of, the, of, this, of these laws um, and what the intention is, because it's not protection um, of sex workers. It's protection of communities from sex work. Let's get into that. Um, before we started recording, I mentioned, you know, like we don't talk about this enough. I think there's a lot of stigma, obviously, around sex work. And I just maybe that is why it hasn't been prioritized in progressive spaces enough. Um, Maybe that kind of idea permeates. Maybe there are people who still think sex work should be criminalized. I don't understand it, especially if you look at it from a labor perspective. It's selling your labor. It's not ideal. None of us should be forced to sell our labor, um, but we do in many, many, many ways. 
that that uses our bodies to produce wealth, right? Um, this is actually the, the one form where sex workers own the means of production. This is not welcome in a capitalist society, right? Being able to control your own means of production and deciding your own, maybe challenging mainstream values, um, traditional values that still um, eke their way through parliament. And when I say traditional, I'm rolling my eyes, right? I hope the audience understands that. Um, why do people continue to, they can't overtly say, do they overtly say because it's wrong? Well, because that, Sometimes. To me, that, Sometimes. Sure. But what they don't overtly say is what you're alluding to uh, and what you've said quite clearly is um, that it's, it's not popular uh, to share power with and to redistribute power uh, that's been rightfully uh, stolen from people. It's not popular to do that with women in particular who are controlling their bodies. One of the first prostitution laws that existed um, before the criminal code existed in the Nova Scotia Act was a law that um, made it, it was, it was like a vagrancy type law that made it illegal for women to be in a public space by themselves. That's how the law was written. Um, if she was unaccounted for, so if she wasn't at home and she wasn't having babies and she wasn't doing the traditional things and she wasn't upholding the traditional values, uh, she was criminalized for that. And so that is the roots of prostitution law. Um, and when you follow through the history of prostitution law, it is always about maintaining certain values. Um, the values that are being promoted, like, so it's all about sort of controlling sexuality, controlling uh, and, and, and promoting these, these sort of very heterosexist um, nationalist I, I, you know, family values. Um, it's it's a, it's a limitation on the you know the diversity in that. It is uh, they are sexist, they are racist, they are colonialist, they are um, you know all of the values that that all are the isms within that. Yes, all the isms, um, and that's sort of what that's why that happens. I mean, at the at the very same time. Uh, the contradiction in that is one that permeates not just through sex work, but through any kind of sexual expression or diversity or sexual rights is, is the hypocrisy um, that, you know, there, there's a thriving sex industry. Like there's a lot of clients um, and there has been sex sells, right? Not centuries, just though, right? sex it's work. Not new. It's not new. And so obviously there's a, there's a market, there's a need, there's a desire. Um, so, and, and those people come from somewhere. They come from conservative parties. They come from liberal parties. They come from NDP parties. They come from all the strikes. It's a human activity. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not a so, partisan. So the, the, but, but that complexity or contradiction in, in around sexuality and sexual desire um, is not something that's limited to sex work. It just takes a different shape in sex work, but you can see it. But I will say that the, the sexual values um, or the hypocrisy or the inability for people to actually talk about sex and to, to communicate and to, to communicate consent and to communicate what they need, um, that is something that is, you know, a problem in more ways than just sex workers' rights. If we look at education and how people um, express their sexuality or express their gender identity or express um, their needs or even just know how to communicate consent in different ways, not just to sex, but to different things, that's a problem. And it's because we have a very stifled, repressed, Victorian um, ideas uh, that are promoted in our in our education system or wherever around sex and sexuality. So that, so So people will say, yes, that's wrong. Um, but I think 
one of the most dangerous things that happens in a current context is the um, appropriation of the language of rights when it comes to this. Um, and so now the PCPA is being touted as a feminist equality model. So this notion of equality is being touted. And so, so the, the, even it's, it's the same values. Yesterday, sex workers were considered criminal. Today, sex workers are considered victims. But it's the same laws that existed before and after that moment. And they are the laws to eliminate sex workers and to eliminate sex work. And so the same values of, if you, if you dig really deep into the discourse around equality. It's still the same religious right um, promoting certain sexual values. And so it sounds like white feminism again. It is. It is. And it doesn't recognize who's doing sex work and who the most marginalized sex workers are and how sex workers are impacted by criminalization. And so it's very easy for, you know, this language of rights that is being, again, manipulated because you can't talk about rights without talking about the interdependence of rights and sort of economic rights and, and sexual rights and all these other rights. You can't just say, you know, feminist equality rights in one breath at the expense of all the other rights that are being violated. Um, it's not a rights movement to suggest that. It's not an equality movement. This isn't an equality model. Criminalization is a carceral model. It's a carceral feminist model, if you will, if you need to use the word feminism there. But it's one that, you know, PCPA relies on the policing of Indigenous bodies and Black bodies and migrant bodies. It, it depends on that for it to survive. And that cannot be something that we call a feminist model or an equality model. And you said it earlier when I called it a labor movement. You reminded me that, you know, it's also a migrant movement. It's an anti-misogynistic movement, however we want to define it. Um, and that's really seen in the recommendations. It's not just in criminal law that sex work is mentioned. Um, you have recommendations there in terms of immigration law or deportation law. And I'm even seeing um, one that just kind of sat funny with me, where there was a specific law there on the books for stopping traffic. Oh, is it PD as a sex worker? Like, yeah. like yeah, I can't stop traffic, yeah. <laughs> whether I'm a sex worker or not. And I, I think you mentioned that a lot in the work, um, the safety, dignity and equality report there, where there can be laws on the books that protect people that are being exploited, that are stepping in front of traffic, you know, like there already are, in fact, sometimes laws, but they specifically write ones there for sex workers. Are the penalties increased? Like if a sex worker walks in front of a car, they're going to they're well, going to get more trouble than if I were to walk in front of a it's car. It's a criminal law, right? So, so, yeah. so again, like the, it's why it's so decriminalization to our alliance is really about the removal of a criminal framework because a lot of what, because we don't need extra special laws to address the violence that sex workers experience. We don't need it to be sex work specific in the criminal code um, to, uh, to address the issues that say if, if, if sex work, so if sex workers are experiencing violence, there's a whole slew of laws in the criminal code, um, that uh, general laws of application around assault, around, uh, confinement, uh, around consent, you know, that are built within assault, um, that are, you know, there's so many different laws that we name threats, um, coercion, uh, within the criminal code that could be 
uh, used in the context uh, for sex workers. So we don't need an extra spec. We don't need these prostitution specific laws. And that's what the, the first step of decriminalization, as we define it, is to remove those sex work specific laws and to rely on these general laws of application to address the sex work it, it, when sex workers need to, to address uh, abuses or exploitation against them. Now, I'm not. I'm not arguing that the criminal code is effective in doing that. I think a lot of feminist activists will know how very ineffective sexual assault law is. Um, but creating and leaning into criminal law as a means um, to to address that isn't a way to do. And I think there's this approach that used to be very. Um, in, that used to be something that the Conservative Party alone would sort of take, this law and order approach. They used to really lean in. Now the NDP party and the Liberal Party are really leaning into criminal law every time they want to address something. They, oh, we'll create a new law for that. Um, and so there's this tendency to, to do that. And so we argue we don't need those specific laws for sex work. Um, and so you know, the, the impeding traffic or the stopping traffic law is related to the communication law, which is when a sex worker sells her own services in public. And so it was created as a means of just controlling how she can be and where she can be in public space. So obviously, a criminal law around that is more um, intense than a loitering law, which is a municipal bylaw. Obviously, the charges are different. Obviously, one is a criminal record and one is not. And um, having a criminal record has its own um, there, there's different impacts of that in terms of your own mobility, ability to get another job, and, and your economic mobility, your physical mobility. There's obviously um, huge impacts around that. So I just sorry, I kind of interjected there when you said public space, because yeah. then in reading all of that, the definition of public space is very broad. They're not just talking about street corners. It's like anywhere you can go that you even are invited, that you can access. It's it really is an erasure, an attempted erasure of, of sex workers. And I just wanted folks to get an idea perhaps of what that, why make that connection as to why that makes it more dangerous actually for sex workers, um, not being able to, to criminalize even folks involved, right? So if you are pushed into a private building, that has to be your own private building. Is that right? Like you can't, rent a space you can't share a space you right well um in a okay so you want me to talk about the impacts of the laws a little bit so you're asking a little bit because i think like we've mm -hmm. talked about like we've just made that jump and some folks might still be sold that these laws are in a way protecting or you know going after the sure. johns sure. and yeah. um so again the lived experience is different so I think um, people take for granted what it means to work in a criminalized industry or to be criminalized. Um, when you are criminalized, you're effectively um, like shunned from like a social project. Like people talk about criminals in certain ways, criminal criminals. They, you know, people think certain people who've committed crimes should or shouldn't um, be worthy of accessing public space, accessing public services, having access to different things in your life. And so housing, yeah, right. We've heard of landlords so refusing. Absolutely. And so what the, what the criminal law actually does is sends the message one, that there's something inherently wrong with sex work and inherently wrong with sex workers. Um, and so sex workers need to constantly hide the fact that they're doing sex work, lest they be at risk of losing their children, um, being evicted from a home, um, not be, being being fired from their straight job because some sex workers have many jobs, um, you know, not being get, getting access to different kinds of education, health services, going to access health, legal or other institutional services and being discriminated against. 
That isolation has a huge impact on sex workers um, in terms of their ability to um, to access and to, to access services and to live in the world in a way that most people take for granted. And that's those are sort of the impacts, even just some of the impacts beyond um, beyond criminal beyond arrest. And I think when people think about the impacts of arrest of, of criminalization, they think solely about arrest. And the impacts of criminalization go well beyond arrest for sex workers. Now, when we look at the actual laws, we need to consider that sex workers are unable to communicate. So it's illegal to communicate to sell your own services. So you can't actually communicate with a client what your services look like, what consent looks like to you, what services you're offering for what amount of money. And in any normal sexual interaction or one that's healthy um, is one that understands boundaries and one that in which you're able to consent. But the criminal law literally vitiates the consent that sex, the conditions under which consent can be established with a client. Um, It also criminalizes the purchase of sexual services in any place at any time. And so when sex workers are letting clients into their homes to see them, they're committing, they're, they're, they're committing a crime or, they're, or they're, they're, they're part of a crime. They're entrenched in that criminality uh, because you're not supposed to be committing crimes when you rent a, a space indoors. And so a lot of sex workers are at risk of eviction in that context. But also they're taking part in a criminal activity in that moment. Um, third parties in the industry, as you mentioned earlier, um, hiring anyone to help you advertise, to have your website, um, if you're not, um, if, if you don't own the website yourself, to find clients, to answer the phone for you, to, um, to you know, to, to book clients for you, to be your security, to be your driver. All of that is actually um, illegal in the sex industry. Um, and the, the, you know, again, there's different. There's different ways that they played with the law to make it seem like there's certain certain ones of those arrangements that are possible, but they're actually not in a context where the client is criminalized. In all, sex work is actually illegal, so none of that stuff can be can can happen. And so, right, and like we said earlier, who's going to walk that line of maybe no, no, you know, this is it. technically legal, you but you know you can't. It, it's you such can't. A, it is a deterrent, but this is maddening because I think everyone knows sex work isn't going anywhere. It's right. Like, I don't even anywhere, think no. <laughs> the conservatives, even in their statement that Absolutely. they want to eradicate sex work, that is a lie. Like they are probably clients themselves. Like this is a, an activity that is. Well, and what they have been forever. Yes. And they've since said that they know they can't eradicate the whole industry. They're just going to try to eradicate as much as possible. And so they've literally um, argued that pitting human rights in this way um, is, 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 is an acceptable thing to do. Imagine most of your work then centers on smashing this stigma. But do you think it would matter? Because even I brought it up earlier and we didn't get into it. it it's important to me, but the Liberal Party, its members, who I consider centrist for the most part, but we're not going to get into that. Like this is kind of the middle of the road Canadian and they passed in 2018. You've corrected me on my timeline before, so I could be wrong. Um, they passed a bill that said, we as members of the Liberal Party want you to decriminalize sex work. We recognize that what is on the books is dangerous and harmful, as the Supreme Court has told us already, you know, um, and it's really gone nowhere. Yeah. So even it was a resolution, most- not a bill. And, and no, no, it's sorry. Yeah. But that's that's an important message from its membership. So as the Liberal Party, it got a mem like 
its bosses, in theory, the should be as the... Well. The NDP oh, has a resolution that was no passed. There. The Green Party had a resolution that was passed. Um, the, I mean, you know better than anyone um, that the resolutions that are passed within a party are... They, they're meant to serve as a blueprint for the party, but the way that the MPs actualize those resolutions um, are, are very different in space and time. I know. We have a but, whole episode on that. But my point yes, was... Most definitely, it was The a stigma is yes. fading amongst the public. Absolutely. The public seems to understand yes. this nuance. They do they in some eat. ways. And there's been a lot okay. of, there's been a lot of uh, progression. So I've been doing this for over 20 years. And in the 20 years that I've been doing this, um, there, you know, I can talk about sex work in a different way than I was able to um, 20 years ago. Uh, there's a you mean openly or, or well, I can just say I can Both. say the word sex work and people know what I'm talking about, and that that is different um, to you know having to use words like prostitution that are really heavy and loaded, um, or that's different to having to talk about sex work in a certain way. Even if you look at the difference in the constitutional challenges, the way the rights are articulated, the one that we launched in 2021 versus the one that was launched in 2007, the Bedford case that I was saying earlier was strictly about harm and the right not to be murdered. Now we have a much more, uh, are able to have a much more sophisticated analysis of the ways that people exist in the world. And so there's a recognition and a different understanding of sex work today, but I would still argue that it is a very classed and, and raced uh, way of understanding it. So which sex workers are actually accepted? So, you know, what, who does she look like? What is she doing? In what context is she working? And usually... Um, the, the sex workers who have, for whom the stigma has been reduced to some extent, at least in popular media and popular discussion, not necessarily within the family units, um, but to, to, for, for whom that stigma has been reduced to some extent are, are more privileged sex workers or, or sex workers who are who have access to different kinds of privilege, not sex workers who are occupying public space, not sex workers who are living in the most extreme, more extreme poverty um, you know, sex workers who 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 exist in, in those public spaces, for instance, or sex workers who are using drugs or trans sex workers or migrant sex workers are still stigmatized in a very different way because of those intersections, um, you know, and the agency of those sex workers is not recognized. And so people will very often only recognize the agency of sex workers when they um, are, you know, jet setting or when they're, um, you know, working in a certain context or if they're paying for university educations, not even then, but more so then, um, than someone who's working in a context of, of paying for diapers for her family. And, and that is the ways that people recognize the agency of people in general, you know, but people in poverty aren't seen as people who are always making decisions um, or where their agency isn't recognized or they're treated like children. Um, you know, migrant Asian women are treated like children, not making decisions for themselves. Indigenous women are treated like children with this infantilization of people. Um, and this sort of protectionist attitude of people um, without recognizing the agency that people are exercising every day. So, yes, the stigma has been reduced to some extent, for sure. You know, if you just look at popular media, there's some great ways that sex work is, is being referred to. It used to only be that you would turn on the TV and there would be a dead hooker lying on the ground. You'd never see her face. You'd never know her name. And the, you know, the crime lab people would be moving around her and then they would move away and the, and the story began. But she was, she was no one. Um, and now we have much more diverse representations of sex workers in media. You know, the last season of White Lotus, for example, or there's a few new movies out there. But 
all this to say is there's still a lot of stigma. And so, of course, our member groups across the country are engaged in that uh, and doing that every day, humanizing sex work. The challenge with that is when you humanize sex work, you're accused of, of glamorizing sex work um, because you're recognizing it as valuable labor. And people think that that is an overstated empowerment or that we're claiming that it's so empowering. But yes, it's empowering to be able to pay your hydro bill. Yes, it's empowering to be able to, to feed yourself. Um, those are empowering things for people who need money uh, to be able to do. And so I think that's an, just an important uh, realism there um, to, to recognize. Yeah. It's amazing to me. Like, I, I feel I agree. I'm not going to argue with you on the stigma. You you are there. I feel like it's that class, though, that class based barriers is what you're really facing, like because you need the legislature's. To, to get in line and, and that's the ruling class. So I want to go to the courts, right? We are going to use the courts. Um, a lot of times on the show, we talk about different tactics and appeals to politicians. You know, we've been there. We know what that does. We look, we have success, successful resolutions and, um, you know, Jen is still fighting. So, but you also mentioned the Bedford case. That's Terry Lynn Bedford, right? Um, Terry Jean, yeah, it's Terry Jean, Terry Jean, Bedford, thank Amy you, Levovich, and and Val Scott. Those were the three sex workers that sued the government at the time. Thank you. Um, yeah, she she made quite a, a name for herself. I learned about her in political science class. Uh, <laughs> she had so, a name before the case too, yeah, because she had been I, arrested years prior for just uh, challenging it like head yeah. on, you know. Um, but that case that was launched was 2007. So I, I put that in my notes because the Supreme Court case was 2012. That's the decision five came years. out in 2013, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah it's, a like long time. Six... it's a long process, yeah. And you've almost just initiated a new... 2021, yeah. Okay. And so your materials make it clear, like, this is a long road. Why choose this route knowing it's very costly and time-consuming? Sure. I think that's a really great question. Um I think the strategies that we use to get to our goals as social justice activists is a, I, I, that's my jam. I love talking about this stuff, so I love that you're focused. Oh, I should have had you on ages ago. Oh, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. I love. I can talk about this forever. Um, but I will say that um, my own jury, <laughs> my own jury on whether to go through the courts or parliament is undecided and will probably forever remain so. I think that there are benefits and pitfalls of both of those strategies. Um, you know, in general, in that for this particular case, um, we were at a stage. So when those laws, when the PCPA was implemented in 2014, it came with a promise of review after five years. So there were a few things attached to that bill. One of them was after five years, they would review the, the laws to see how effective they were. Um, and so five years after that, they didn't. Um, and then seven years after that, they did. But seven years after that was too late for us. And so we also, before that review was taking place, we, you know, met with government officials. We we did our, you know, political campaigning and conversations, and we tried to have conversations around this. And the Liberal government had actually promised, because they they contested the bill as it was moving through the House. So did the NDP and so did the Green Party. The and Bill C-36. Bill C-36. They contested it. 
and they were fighting against it the whole time. And then um, what's when, the but? Yeah, well, when it came into play, and when they when they came into power, they spent the first year saying that they were going to review it. They were going to review it, and then they kind of just fell off and didn't do anything. And that's when we decided in 2015, okay. They're not doing anything. Um, they're really not doing like they, they were real, like we've been in conversation with them at, in some way, like even if it was like light fake conversation, we at least had access to conversation. And they really shut us out in 2000 after they won in 2015. They shut us out um, about six months afterwards. Jody Wilson Raybould at the time, like was doing her rounds and saying she was going to have conversation with us, but it was too much for her to take on for different reasons, um, none of which I respect. Um, and so they dropped it. And so we were like, we actually need to get it together and be really clear because the, because everybody's asking us, what do you mean when you want decrim? What do you mean? What does it look like? And so we said, okay, we need to do this consultation with our members to, to lay out what it means. And so we looked at, you know, different jurisdictions of federal law. So uh, criminal law and, and immigration law and some employment law. And then we looked at public, you know, provincial frameworks of youth protection, public health, occupational health and safety, and then we looked at municipal laws, and that's where you see those recommendations covering the gamut of that. So I just wanted to bring that in there, but your original question um, was why to go through the courts. And so so we did that work of that consultation. We did that work of putting together those 54 recommendations. Of it was li It's literally this document that you've been referring to is, is a blueprint for law reform. You just need one MP to get in there and make it happen. It does require con, con, like cons, not consultation, but collaboration across jurisdictions, which we know is very difficult for this for for the way the government functions. But but if people are actually interested in doing this, they need to work across party lines. They need to work across jurisdictions to make it happen. So that's what that document is. And so after promoting and promoting these recommendations and being like, here's how to do it. This is what upholding the rights of sex workers look like. This is what protection looks like and getting no response and just hearing the same conversations happening again and again and again in Parliament. We didn't really have a choice. I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's a weird word. I don't like the word choice, but we were sort of backed into a corner to say, okay, how, how do, you can only make law reform happen in one of two ways. You have to go through the courts or you have to go through Parliament. And so when Parliament fails you, you go back to the court. It's not to suggest that the court is a better way, but I will say that the court offers a formulaic um, like forum where you can, you can actually talk and present your story in a certain way like you can actually get the arguments out there creating you know we launched that charter challenge in 2021 and creating the record and they're forced to respond that's what to respond but you're you're you at least get a documentation of your stories and your histories and that that record that we created is a beautiful record it's a record of fact and empirical evidence and 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 testimonials um of sex workers stories written up in academic research and in social science and in community research and it's a beautiful account of what the story is and so that story is out there now forever whether or not and, and in whatever way the Crown wants to play with that is another story. But the a court challenge going through the courts is sometimes more interesting because you get a moment to actually also use human rights mechanisms that whether you believe in them or not. And like, again, my own jury's out on that one. At, you know, on paper, 
and the philosophy behind these mechanisms, they're supposed to do something. And so at the very least, and it usually is the very least that we're dealing with, you can hold government to account with these mechanisms. Um, and, and in the ways that you use them, you can you can actually address some of the um, inequities or inequalities that are happening. And so the court challenge has allowed us to do that. Whereas when we've engaged with parliament, you're engaging with people who are just people. They're just people. They don't they're not qualified to understand sex work. They're not that's not their job. Their job is to be an MP. And it means that they have to understand every single thing about in every single way. But they can't actually do that. So they're really just representing, often themselves, but claiming to represent a constituency. But that's their job, is that is that sort of what they're calling a democratic process and, and process of decision making. But they don't know about sex work from Adam. So so they don't know what the issues are. They don't you have to teach every MP and then there's all that shifting of all the cabinet members and this particular government loves to shift. And then getting ghosted, members. right? <laughs> yes, like exactly. So there's that there's that process. And so it's the same conversation again and again, but in a different way. But because you're with some rules with, that they have to follow, sort of. Well, for the I most don't part. think that they do follow. I think there's rules that the courts have to follow. But I think with the MPs, there's just you're dealing with opinions. That's, That's what I it. mean. Like you've shifted this same discussion you have to have with them, but now it's like out in the open. It's structured. There's a there's a judge. I don't find that is, it, but I don't find it structured. I find it actually quite disorganized, and I find it's actually it, it's just the courts a are. No, the court is structured. No, okay, yeah, we're just having a miscommunication Sorry. there. I'm just saying, like, when you've, you've pulled this conversation you've been trying to have in Parliament, in the offices, you know, yes. on the streets to, right, to, to, to raise public pressure on these same politicians, but the courts allow you to kind of drag them out, make yes. them respond on the record, right? Because not only are your stories now there and out, but their responses, they can't be vague. They can't just dodge the question. They need an answer. They need to say why they're not doing something, right? Well, sort of. It's it, Yes, arguably, yes. It, it most For the most part, it, in its simplest form, yes. Like the courts are really distinct from parliaments, as you know, right? So they can't speak to why or why not. That's the problem is they can't speak to why or why not parliament decided to do something. They can only speak to what the law looks like and the objectives, and that's a limitation of the court. But I do think that it's Sometimes, at least this constitutional challenge is, is a huge burden, obviously, because communities don't have the money or the resources to do this. Um, but at the same time, it's a big, it's a sigh of relief to not be engaging with parliamentarians in a certain way anymore, um, because they're not listening anyways. And they, they, they're, it's not just that they're not listening, it's that they don't understand and they're not actually using the human rights mechanisms that they're meant to use in, in the way that they're meant to use them. So they're... Um, so it, it so yeah so it's a respite in a sense from that, but um, it, but both have their. Neither is effective because, as we saw in Bedford, the Supreme Court of Canada made a decision, and then Parliament just implemented another set of criminalizations. Right. So, so even though one is meant to the Supreme Court, and they're meant to be distinct, but but they're meant to work in harmony in some ways. Like when the Supreme Court of Canada makes a decision on an issue, the Parliament is meant to take the spirit of that and implement it. And uh, I, I think that arguing that PCPA is within that spirit is 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 a is a lie. And I no, think it's, I no, think no, there's that. no one that can and look. We are at... arguing that, and no. they, I think that they are <laughs> like, and I think that they are in denial, or they also don't know that. 
human rights are interdependent, right? You can't just be like equality. This is about protection. It's about equality. Like you can't just you can't cherry pick one right without recognizing. For instance, our our case is um, largely also focused on Section 15 equality rights, which where we talk about um, you know the intersections of people, um, people living at the intersections, and people who are most impacted by criminal law and the ways that communities are most impacted by criminal law, particularly migrant sex workers and indigenous sex workers. Um, and what and who is actually impacted and how women are impacted and racialized women are impacted. And so you can't you can't talk about equality without talking about the way that people are surveilled um, and the way that people are repressed in different ways and the different kinds of oppression that people experience. Um, and PCPA does that. It, it's sort of a blanket like protectionist um, law, but it doesn't it doesn't function on the on the cornerstone of human rights, which is around interdependence of human rights. And so um, it's weak, but <laughs> but it's popular because um, it it gives people, you know, you're talking about stigma and the way that stigma functions is that anything that is like a mark, right? The stigmata. It's, and so anything that somebody says that I say to someone, um, they are comparing to what's in their mind, what are the preconceived ideas that they have. And so either, you know, in that moment, I'm talking about sex workers' rights and I'm, I'm appealing to people explaining um, how dangerous it is for sex workers to work in a context of criminality, how criminality actually breeds exploitation and violence because sex workers don't have recourse um, to experiences of violence. Um, and predators are most literally invited to prey after sex workers because they know that sex workers don't have recourse and won't go to the police because they don't want to be detected. So I'll explain that to people. And they're listening to me thinking, oh, she's, she's not, she doesn't look like the idea that I have in my head. She's, or she's too articulate or she's not articulate enough, or she's too drunk or she's not drunk enough. And I have an idea of a sex worker in my head that I know that I know we really need to criminalize. And, and that's the way that stigma functions. It's the discrediting of the people who talk. And there is no, there's no lack of sex workers out there talking about what they need. There's thousands and thousands of sex workers across the country. And yet this government and most of society is still able to say, yeah, 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 but not them. Those are the happy hookers. And these are stories that are like of living in poverty and working in poverty and working in bad conditions. And so that stigma is very much entrenched in people and, 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 and the way that the ideas they have of sex workers are very much entrenched. And so it's it takes a lot to undo that is all I think I, I'm trying to say in the 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 way that Parliament responded in this case it, it very much um, rides the wave and and takes advantage of those ideas that people have in their mind of of exploited people and 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 how sex workers are exploited because no no possible no person who is a rational person could possibly ever decide to sell sexual services and it monopolizes on that stereotype of sex work is dirty and people who are doing sex work is not possibly of right mind. And it, and it sold this idea to the public and quite successfully um, because people already thought that sex workers were just crazy bitches anyways. Right. And so now here, you know, so it's, it's a similar tactic used to silence disabled folks. If you are like autistic people, especially if you are enough to advocate for uh, autistic support services or, you know, against certain therapies or whatnot, um, 
you're obviously not autistic enough to be yeah. advocating for autistics in general, right? And disabled, all spectrums face that, you know. Um, and that's the function. That is the function of stigma. Because we expect an autistic person, we expect someone who's doing sex work, we expect someone who's indigenous to be or act or say a certain thing. And if fit you that image in her head. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that our member groups do and that we try to more so the member groups individually, but um, is, is try to do that education and trying to be, you know, that's what's important about a social movement is to try and be visible so that people can see what the diversity of the movement is. And that's what this case tries to do. And that's why our alliance launched the case, because our alliance is a huge diversity, as you mentioned at the beginning of sex workers and sex worker rights groups to try and say, okay, the idea that you have in your mind isn't actually what's happening. So unknow everything you think you know, um, and actually pay attention to what's out there. And so if you read the record in our case, you, you can read about the huge diversity of people who frankly don't have anything in common except for the fact that they're selling or trading sexual services for money. Um, and that that's a big deal, you know, that people can come together under under that banner in this moment because because that's they're all experiencing the harms from that, even though those harms are experienced differentially across that diversity. It's I mean, it's hard to get any kind of workers together and agree on stuff like that. I think it, perhaps it's that shared experience of that criminalization. That it is that. Yeah, it's unfortunate yeah. that that awful entity has brought folks together like that. But thank goodness it did, because, you know, and we're going to link your work to the episode. So folks that are listening, if you go into the show notes, you can read this document that we're talking about and you can see some of the other materials there. They've done the work that the government should have, like in terms of reviewing, you know, that's a lot of work gathering thousands Thanks of voices. For saying that. Thank you yeah. for saying that because, because we, it, it, I think the, the, for the biggest, the, the most disheartening thing about doing uh, this kind of social justice work is that so much of the work that's done by uh, people, the people, is the work that shouldn't be done by the people. And that is the burden on marginalized communities that marginalized Always. communities bear. Yeah, it's, it, and it's unreal. And it's why um, most of, it's, it's, and it's amazing that we have such an organized movement in a context where people are living these realities all the time, because most people don't, you know, most, most sex workers aren't activists. Most sex workers aren't at the front lines of a, of a, of a human rights movement, but there are tons that are. Um, and, you know, same is true of migrant justice movements, same is true of racial justice movements to, for communities who are living um, the, the, the abuses and the repressions to, to be able to organize in such context is miraculous, but it most definitely is the work that the people in government are charged with doing and that they're not doing. And so the recommendations um, that we wrote absolutely shouldn't have been us to have to write them, but, but it, but it most definitely needed to include us, right? Like we should yes, be. Okay. I'm like, it actually like, should have been yeah, you, should, but, but, but somebody should have taken it up. We resources. needed a champion. That's it. Yeah. We needed a yeah. champion and we don't have a champion and we're still looking, <laughs> we're still looking for our champion um, somewhere in parliament. If one were to present themselves, there used to be a very strong champion. And that was uh, Libby Davies, uh, who, who was in the NDP party. And she did some great work with people in the downtown East side. Um, and she's she, a unique. Um, she's quite a unique. We don't get character. a lot of Libby Davises. Yeah, she, yeah, she she is very unique, and and Libby too had a lot to learn, but she did learn, um, and that's one of the uniquenesses about her is that she was open of to a politician, learning. you know. Like, yeah, yeah, she yeah. was very uh, much. She probably and, wouldn't like that label though. No, <laughs> that I, what, I called her a politician. politician no, but no. she was a you know, she was listening. 
Um, and she was learning all the time. And I'm, I, I know I'm forever grateful to her for that, but I don't think I'm the only one. But she, she was a really big champion for sex workers' rights. Um, you know, we started working with her, at least I did, around 2002. Um, and uh, yeah, she was, she launched a committee. Anyways, she just was recognizing all the issues. But since, the, you know, there hasn't been a champion for sex workers' rights in that way, um, someone who really understands the issues or is willing to go to bat in that way, um, she she would mobilize other MPs like she would she was really um, she's she a was force. Really when, yeah, so we're waiting for our new champion, and we have been waiting since Libby um, left politics uh, or left her. If official anyone's post. listening, yeah, um, yeah. But for those that are not in Parliament, what can allies be doing? So folks are going to listen to this and um, probably hopefully be really upset at the laws that are on the books uh, for their community members, <laughs> yeah. right, for the sex workers around them. And what can we be doing better to help you? Um, I, I know this is going to sound really lame as a first response to that, but I do still think there's a lot of work to be done. I had a very good friend uh, who used to say to me, you know, everybody's like, what can we do? What can we do? And, and she used to say to them, like, just, just sit and learn and know, because you, you, we know the answers, but you don't yet. Like you haven't absorbed it yet. And so you're eager to do something, but you haven't yet. Um, you just don't, you, you don't, you can't pretend to have the answers yet. Like just sit and learn and, 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 and know. And I think, for me, when I was saying unknow everything you think you know, I think there's a lot of people that do want to support sex workers, but then the, as they're having the conversation, they're like, yeah, but what about that one incident? They have this like one idea in their mind where they kind of still want to reach for those criminal laws as a way to respond. And so I do think there's a very carceral instinct that people have because they've been trained that criminal law is a response to things. Sure. Even um, folks who use defund the police in the rhetoric oh, yes. will exactly. still. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen. And there's, and I think a lot of that unlearning is around our reach for criminal law, like is, is about learning what an anti-carceral approach looks like, particularly for communities that experience that carceral um, approach in their lives on a daily. Um, and I think that people need to just listen and learn and, and absorb. Um, but after that, um, I think there are millions of ways to, 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 to support this cause, like by having that conversation with other people once you've come into your awakening, um, by donating to sex worker rights groups so that sex workers have more capacity to self-organize, um, by recognizing how sex worker justice is linked in with um, all your other movements. You know, we work very closely with migrant justice movements and racial justice movements and feminist movements um, and two-spirit LGBTQ movements, you know, and people need to recognize that we are, we're everywhere in that sense. And so these movements are really interlinked. And so other people and other movements could actually really uh, support and lift up the, the revendication, the, the demands that sex workers have um, and in different ways, instead of sort of siloing our, our social justice movements in these ways. Um, you know, there's so many different, like there's way, individual ways that people can help. There's collective ways that people can help. Um, you know, I, I think that contacting sex worker rights groups and finding out what sex workers need is in, in, in that moment is interesting and helpful and, and doing that in a more altruistic way instead of sort of needing recognition for it. Um, yeah, that's just a few ideas. 
No, I mean, it's a start for folks. And like I said, we will link everything back and yeah, you've got read, this court challenge. Yeah. yeah. Absorb it. And <laughs> I, I keep making it like 76 pages. It's, it's, well, I, it's a I really you, easy read. I love read, that you though. read it because those recommendations are very dense. And, and I think that it is, a, I don't think it's an easy read for people who, who aren't familiar with the parlay of law or government or it's it, it or even who aren't politicized i'll say it that way okay but I, fair it enough. Is an important most of my audience is though <laughs> yeah yeah well there you go if your audience is politicized then they'll love, you'll love it you'll love it it's it is a i think it's a really every word in that document was carefully chosen and there might be words that we would change today but the collection of of voices in that document is evident but there's also easier reads on our website around like, i will what, share the uh, infographic you shared as yeah. well so the too <laughs> long didn't Read, click the next one yeah. <laughs> because it does it gives you the timeline and a little a lot of the rationale that we yes, couldn't possibly yeah. cover it all here in the time that we had That's but the it. impact on on the lived experience of sex workers is definitely something that a lot of people don't think of you know even myself in my approach there it was on the street so one of the biggest lessons I learned from this interview is just like how it permeates their everyday life, this criminalization. And if we just try to imagine if our pastime or our labor or anything that we did on a regular basis was criminalized, um, what that would do to your psyche, to how you operate freely in that social experiment, you called it, you know, and... Yeah, it's well, it's, it's not a just a criminal. project, I think, too, right? The, of pro- producing a certain society that looks a certain way that sex workers are get eliminated from in that process. Yeah, yeah. Not on your watch, Jen. <laughs> I am I am only the the spokesperson here, but I promise you, behind me is thousands and thousands of people who who are holding that mantle, and that's uh, that's the only reason I can still do this. I appreciate all the work of you and your co-workers and for giving me and my audience this list, this, this learning experience. Um, Oh, you're generous. Thank you. There there is work to be done, but I feel like you guys, you feel like you've got some power behind you. It's hard to argue with where you're coming from. I just hope that the right folks do the right thing and start to prioritize your case. I hope so too. I mean, and, and just, May I just add one more thing to that? Yes, I, please. You get the last word, Jen. What people could do to help. And I think when you just named power for me, um, that was very important because, you know, there, there are people who have so much different kinds of power, even just the power to, um, you know, just to open certain doors. And sex workers know what to do once those doors are open. Sex workers can go right through that door, sit down and speak, at, you know, as they say, speak truth to power. Um, but it's sex workers don't have that social power. Um, and so I think it, what is important is for people to share that social power in the different ways. If you have access to MPs ears, um, give it to us. Um, if you have access to, to different economy, give it to us. If you have access, you know, share that power, redistribute that power. I know that's a very scary thing for people to do because power is, very comfortable for people who have it. Um, and, and so, you know, redistributing and sharing is, is, is a threat to people who have power. And that's a part of the reason why sex workers are maintained in marginality is because even though people see sex workers um, and, and, and see the world and, you know, they, they want to maintain the power that they have. And so I think one of the most impactful things that people can do is to think of ways to share that power um, and to redistribute that power back into communities who have been stripped of that, of that power. Um, and that's what, in, 
in the end will um, like really liberate everybody. But I think that's sort of people need to come into that on their own time. I get that. So elevate voices, provide access when when it's po- where it's possible, right? Absolutely. When we talk about that, that's right. Like many levers of power, many, many, many levers to pull. Just grab one. <laughs> so again, thank you so much, Jen, for your time. This has been a really, really, really lovely conversation. I'm grateful for your generosity, for real. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.